On this week's show, my guest is Matt Neglia from the Next Best Picture podcast and nextbestpicture.com. Matt and his team do an amazing job of covering all things movies, not just award season, although they shine during award season. So definitely make sure you look them up. And this week, we're going to be discussing our favorite films from the studio A24. Let's get into it. Welcome to another episode of Two Peas. Good evening, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Two Peas on a Podcast. I'm so glad that you were able to join us again this week. And I'm also very excited because I have a first-time guest on the show. And that's exciting in its own right, but it's extra exciting this week because it's Matt Neglia from the Next Best Picture Podcast and just NBP in general. I've been a fan of his for several years. I follow him for all of my award season news. His website's awesome. His podcast is awesome. All of his information will be down below for you guys to check out if you're into that. Matt, welcome to the show, man. It, we've been Twitter friends forever, and finally, here you are. Twitter friends forever. Bald guys with beards unite. That's right. Even though I'm covering mine up right now with a hat. Yes. I'm very, very happy to be here. Well, thanks, man. You know, like I said, it's a, it's very special to me because I've been following you for a while. And, you know, you have a great community over there and they really get into award season and I do too. So it's, it's great to have an outlet because I can't really do that on my show so much. I do it a little bit more here on YouTube lately, but on my show, it's not really conducive to the Oscars. So I'm a patron of your show and I love tuning in every week. So I really appreciate what you do over there, particularly during award season. It's awesome, man. I really appreciate that. You know, it's like we don't take uh, the time away from award season off we're always constantly working but whether you listen to us during award season or all year round uh, we're just very very happy to be here doing what we do and we really appreciate it absolutely man now my show is a top five show so we do a fun top five countdown week after week it's usually centered around movies which obviously i had to have you on for a movie topic (laughs) so i threw a few of them at you over on twitter a while back and we settled on this one and you were pretty much right away like this is the one i want to do So why don't you tell the folks what countdown we're doing tonight? We are doing our top A24 films. Yeah, our top five A24 movies. Now, you know, something about A24 that I kind of wanted to say, and then you could probably help me articulate a little bit, but A24 is kind of interesting because they're a studio that's putting out these releases, especially in the last like five years or so, that are somewhat mainstream, like the general audience can be drawn to a lot of them. And I don't want to give away any titles up top, Matt. I forgot to tell you that, but I like to keep them kind of under wraps in case they come up on our list. Okay. But as speaking in generalities, but they also really appeal to the critical community, which I know you're a part of, and kind of that film Twitter crowd, because they kind of have that indie feel. But then they also kind of bring in some of these, you know, some of the general audience too. Can you speak to that a little bit? I mean, why did you want to do A24 of all the ones I pitched to you? So it's been very interesting, actually, with A24 over the last couple of years. I and many others out there have recognized that they are not just a movie studio. They are a brand Mm -hmm. and repping A24's merchandise or saying that you're a fan of A24 and the films that they put out and such. It's really been fascinating to me that they have become in in a way like the Disney of independent film. Mm -hmm. And I I just find that to be fascinating. They may not have uh, the IP of stuff like Star Wars or Marvel, but for cinephiles who subscribe to, say, Martin Scorsese's version of cinema, Mm -hmm. A24 is 
delivering what cinephiles crave on a yearly basis and not just with really hard-hitting dramas or horror films. They've also got uh, comedies. They've got wholesome films. They get nominated for awards. I mean, there's a real, real slate of variety there. And every year, it feels like they just are tailor-finding or making in-house the right kinds of films that cater to their audience. And it's it's I just can't get enough of it. I really, really hope they never, ever undergo uh, a new form of like direction or management of any kind. Just stay the course. Just well, stay the course. Well, it's funny, it's funny you mentioned that because I guess some of the skeptics or criticism, I should say, that they they come under sometime is during award season because, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, they don't get a lot of love, especially from the Academy. I mean, again, I don't like to give away any titles, but there's been some projects in the last few years that are easily in my top five, top 10 of the year, but they're just like mm-hmm. not even on the radar for, for the Academy. Why do you think that is? Is that just a kind of like a marketing thing or what? Yeah, I mean, there's always multitude of different factors to say that it boils down to one thing is never actually accurate in my opinion but i mean you know you had one of their titles last year be a best picture nominee and get multiple oscars including a win and every year it does feel like they have contenders that could get there the reality of the situation is that they are still a very small studio and they are not warner brothers disney universal they don't have the same level of finances to push everything as hard as they possibly could. They have to be very strategic about what it is that they're doing. And some years it is more worth it to go harder than others. And, you know, in the long run, yes, awards are all a a marketing ploy to get people to see your work. Ultimately, Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not in charge of their return on investment. You know, I, I can't quantify for you if the money that they spend to do all that promotional work is something that they are indeed getting back or not. I don't know. What I do know is I do know that their fan base is extremely passionate. Mm -hmm. And some people, as soon as they see that logo on a trailer, they're in. That's it. They don't even need to see anything else. I'm one of those people. (laughs) I don't know (laughs) if you are, but I I love A24. You you know, I didn't expect to hear you say it tonight, but you were talking about wearing their merch earlier. I have an A24 t-shirt that my daughter got me and I've it's one of my favorite t-shirts. So I, I am a fan and I really do kind of carry the torch for that brand. And I'll talk a little bit about why when we get into some of our picks, because, you know, there's some of my favorite movies of the last 10 years or so. Now we're releasing this episode. I'm kind of doing it strategically to coincide with the release of The Green Knight, which of course is coming up from A24. It's a film that won't be eligible for the list we're doing because, well, right? I don't think you've seen it or have you? You haven't seen it. No, oh, no. Oh, God. Okay. All right. Well, I didn't I'm thought- playing. I'm playing. I'm playing. I'm playing. I'll be honest. I haven't seen it yet. Okay. All right. <laughs> I mean, I never know if with I, Matt Neglia. If Neglia, say stuff you know? like that and people watch this, they're going to hound me for information. <laughs> sure. and I just don't need that. So sure. coming clean, I haven't seen it. All right. So <laughs> that one won't be eligible for those lists, but I assume your excitement level is pretty high for that one. What do you think about the upcoming Green Knight? Oh, it's very, very high. As someone who really loves the medieval or even medieval fantasy like epic, I've been craving that kind of material since... Game of Thrones ended and obviously left a sour taste in a lot of people's mouths. Uh, so I've been waiting for that genre to make some form of a comeback in, in a way. And while there have been like properties on television and stuff that have tried to replicate Thrones success in terms of adult uh, like medieval epic, like entertainment. Mm. Uh, this is something that I think is going to, if nothing else, you know, like if it doesn't work from a story standpoint or, you know, anything else, it visually looks like a feast for the eyes. And Absolutely. that is something that I uh, like, I, like I was saying before, it's like, how can you not be excited when you watch that trailer? I, I was excited by the talking Fox. 
That was yeah. enough for me. That was I saw great. The Fox talked and I was like, I'm in. That was great. <laughs> and the Green Knight himself with the decapitation and all that in the beginning. I didn't expect to see yeah. that level in the trailer either because it wasn't a red mm-hmm. band trailer. So I, that, I was like, this. I'm in for this. this. I mean, I was anyway, but it really hyped me up even more than I already was, especially having to wait for it for so many extra months. You know, yeah, totally. It was supposed to come out last year at South by Southwest during the spring, and it's been pushed off until the summer of this year. And yeah, I, I agree. The anticipation has made it um, pretty killer in terms of waiting for it. But, you know, David Lowry, the director of that film, he's a filmmaker that I find to be just so fascinating in his trajectory and the types of choices that he has made. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at um, all of his films and his filmography, and he never makes the same film twice. Right. So to see what he's going to do with this is something that, like I said before, whether you are a fan, aren't a fan, if you're just a movie fan in general, yeah, I think that there is reason to be excited for this project. Yeah, I agree. So the Green Knight kind of gave me the idea to do this because I am an A24 fanboy, so to speak. So I said, let me see what Matt Negley is doing. So here we are. So we're going to do our top five films from A24. And if there's any crossover, Matt, that's okay. I don't know that I could really change my list, my five at least. I do have some honorable mentions just because I love them so much. And it was, it, it was, was it easy for you to come up with this list or was it kind of a brainstorm session for you? No. It Are was you hard. kidding me? This yeah. was terrible. I mean, you <laughs> asked me to do this and man, I, I, I had almost a panic attack just trying oh, to go through everything. Oh God. Well, let's see what direction we went in, man. I'm going to let you go first. What is your number five film from A24? Okay. <sighs> see, even starting off, like once I say it, it's, it's real. Yeah. And I right. can't take it back. It's recorded, man. I got it. I'm recording here, so... <sighs> So just to be very clear, this is ebb and flow. It's top five for this list today. It could change. Sure. It's really, really tough. They have so many great titles. I, I, I'm telling you, there's rarely a year that they've been around that one of their films has not made it into my top 10. Mm-hmm. So, all right, number five. I'm starting us off on a high note here. I'm starting off with the 2016 Best Picture winner, Barry Jenkins' Moonlight. Good one. I'm surprised this is low, but with that being said, it's in my honorable mentions. It didn't quite crack my top five. Talk a little bit about Moonlight. I love this movie. Yeah, so this is a film that has grown on me significantly uh, with every single subsequent we watch that I have of it. I think it's something that I appreciate more and more as I get older, not just in terms of its place within cinema history, being a Best Picture winner, because that in, a, in itself is hugely significant just in terms of uh, telling um, LGBTQ stories, uh, black cinema, and also to just Barry Jenkins, really his unbelievable rise. You know, his previous film before is Medicine for Melancholy. Mm-hmm. Um, like no one really knew who Barry Jenkins was right. uh, for the most part. He comes out with this film and it just took everyone by storm. I mean, everyone who watched it really just fell under its spell. Um, in in some ways, it reminds me of uh, Boyhood to a certain extent, where with that film, you actually were watching uh, a, a, a person age right before your eyes over the course of 12 years Mm. but with boyhood there are three actors playing the lead character in this but what's so unbelievable about this casting is that you always always believe that it is the same person right it's really incredible the way that barry jenkins is able to direct these three actors to deliver and embody the same performance of this character at different stages in his life too Mm -hmm. as he's maturing as he's coming to grips with who he is and his identity his sexuality and at the end of the day i just find a movie that ends with a guy getting laid and being at peace with himself and who he is to be so simplistic yet unbelievably touching Mm-hmm. And also, too, it's not just the story and the way uh, that Barry Jenkins tells it with his sense.
sensitivity, his empathy, the way that he captures human emotion, but it also trickles down into every aspect of production. This is a guy who has such command and such vision Mm -hmm. that he is able to elicit this really breathtakingly gorgeous cinematography for such a low-budget film. The score by Nicholas Bertel, who has become my and many, many other people's favorite composer like working today. I think that in a couple years' time, we'll be talking about him the same way we talk about John Williams and Hans Zimmer. Like He's going to be the cream of the crop, in my opinion, if Mm -hmm. he keeps up the level of work that he's been cranking out these last couple of years. Everything about this film is just on fire. And that's not just the Florida setting. (laughs) (laughs) No, I agree, man. It's a great movie. This would have fallen right at my number six. And it was in my top five there for a little while. And kind of like you, it was a little bit of torture to kind of order it, you know, because it's it's six today. But then if I rewatch it tonight, it could be two or one tomorrow. I mean, it's just such an amazing film. And, you know, Barry Jenkins just is a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece. It's the reason why it won Best Picture that year. So good pick. I'm surprised it's five for you because I've listened to you Uh, talk about that movie. And I thought it might be a little bit higher. But did I not mention that this list was hard? It was, yeah. <laughs> now, look, man, I don't, I got to be honest, I didn't listen when you covered this on MVP. So I got to be honest, I don't really know how you feel about this movie. Ooh. Uh, and this might be a little bit of a divisive pick because I was looking earlier, by the way, I should have mentioned at the top, but they've had 85 feature films that would be eligible for what we're doing here tonight. Mm-hmm. So of 85, you know, quote unquote, move, works of art, although some of them are not that amazing, but I'm picking this one. And it just, I just saw it. I just saw it about six months ago. I was finally able to. It was another project that got pushed back. And it's St. Maud, directed by Rose Glass. Her uh, directorial debut. And that's really why I love this movie is because I cannot believe she has never directed a film before. Uh, It's just so beautiful. It's so haunting. It's such a, it's just a character study into darkness and into, you know, because Morpher Clark plays this character, Maud, that, which by the way, I thought she did amazing, but she plays this character that's haunted, right? She's haunted with these demons and she's haunted with her past and tragedies that have occurred in her life. And she takes on religion and Christianity as an outlet for that, but she takes it a little bit too far, right? She's doing a lot more than just praying at night. She's really trying to be just like a prophet almost for her Lord and Savior. And it gets very dark at times and her performance and the way the movie is shot, just the aesthetic of this film, I love so much. And I did not expect for this movie to knock me on my ass like it did. I really wish I could have seen this in the theater because this is one I had to stream. Uh, I'm almost positive you've seen it, but what do you think of St. Maud? What do you think of the pick? So, fun fact, St. Maud was the last film I saw in theaters before the shutdown last year. And I went out on a limb to go see it because I knew that the shutdown was coming. I knew it could happen at any second. There was real like panic and fear and a lot of confusion too. Uh, You're talking this was like the first or second week of March. I think it was like the second week of March. And by that point, you know, you didn't know if by going outside and coming into contact with a human being that you might die. Right. But this is what I was willing to sacrifice for my Lord and Savior, St. <laughs> Maud. Um, well, that's great. <laughs> no, I, I was glad that I saw this film because, first of all, I think Morfid Clark uh, just gives a breakout performance that is going to land her so many of her roles now in the future because she'll forever be synonymous with this really, really troubling but deeply painted character that is someone who, uh, for myself, as someone who grew up uh, Catholic mm-hmm. and had a lot of that really forced on me 
as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I do tend to look at religious iconography and how people take religion so seriously um, to really, really terrifying levels to be something that I feel almost vindicated on that I kind of turned away from it later on in life because mm-hmm. I just couldn't condone what people throughout not just today, but throughout all of human history have used religion in the name of and where it takes this character, it sticks with you. I mean, mm-hmm. to a point really where yeah. that final frame, it's not even the final shot. It's like yeah. frame. Like it's a seconds. split second. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's just something that um, I still have not been able to shake since seeing it. And for that reason alone, I think a movie that lingers on in your mind like that uh, deserves a mention for sure. Yeah. And uh, I can't wait to see what Rose Glass does next, too, because yeah, mm-hmm. it just, I totally. just couldn't look away from some of the images in this film. It had such a great setting and aesthetic that really speaks to me, which will come up a little bit later here in a minute. But that's, <laughs> but that's my number five, St. Maud. What's your number four, buddy? What do you got? Okay, number four. I went back and forth uh, once again, uh, just like I did with all of these. I could totally swap out like these five and I could put a whole other five in and mm-hmm. it would be just as good as a list. Uh, number four for me is a recent movie. Uh, that just came out two years ago uh, from a filmmaker who I think is going to go down as one of our all-time greats, Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse. It's a good one. Starring Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe in a true two-hander. This is so play-like in the theatricality of it all and the way that these two actors bounce off of one another in this really enclosed, uh, very wet, dark, and cold uh, setting. And the slow drip into madness is something that I think Eggers captures so beautifully. There's some really, really incredible imagery in this film. The cinematography was uh, Oscar-nominated. The black and white photography just looks so spellbound, uh, spellbinding mm-hmm. that you really, really not only can't take your eyes off of it, but also too, um, I found it to be a really just fun exercise. Yeah. I, I've had debates with people over what the story is ultimately about. And I think that that is also very, very fascinating when you think mm-hmm. about outside of the surface level of what the actual plot is, just thematically what the story is getting at. Sure. Um, I find that to be really, really great. And some of, like I said, some of the imagery uh, lends itself over to, um, I've heard these like really, really great comparisons and parallels to, to um, Greek storytelling and so on and so forth that I just find to be very intriguing. But realistically, if this if it, if there's anything on the list here of that from me is potentially I don't want to say like fully, but potentially a style over substance uh, sure. pick. Yeah. It's probably this one. But man, oh, man, what style, what theatricality and th- just Willem Dafoe, man. Oh, th- that that man got buried alive for yeah. our entertainment. I don't know. Like I, I, I jokingly was, was saying when this film came out, I don't know if he had coffee grounds thrown in his throat or if yeah, it was actual dirt. I, Turns I out I it heard, was actual dirt. It was. OK, I was going to say, I think yeah. I heard a discussion actually on your show about that. Somebody was saying maybe it was like Oreo crumbles and somebody Something. else was saying. Yeah, no, everybody because nobody could believe that he went to those lengths, but he did. He did. And Pattinson, I think, delivered by far his best work mm-hmm. uh, in this film as well. I would agree. And the uh, the way that it's written in terms of the old uh, the old language and mm-hmm. the meticulous research that Eggers does, oh, I think yeah. that's what sets him apart a lot from other uh, filmmakers is how incredibly detailed he is in capturing the time period, a sense of place and who these people are. So that this way, it's like you feel like you're watching something that uh, does not feel like it was put on for our entertainment. It just feels so real. Yeah, I, you know, you you said really everything I was going to add on, and it, it just is such a it's such a like 
study into the art of filmmaking this movie mm-hmm. like everything about this movie from like a technical standpoint is i'm just in awe of it i mean it's just like the cinematography which it was nominated for and the choices he made the black and white the four to three mm-hmm. like like you said having that kind of play aspect where they you know it's a two-man show pretty much and then in the sound in the sound design with that like yep. the loud, storm like then yeah yeah mm-hmm. it's, it distorted sound at the end with the light shining on Pattinson oh, or wow. whatever. yeah yeah it Whew. just uh left my mouth agape in the theater when I saw that the first time so I think it's a great pick I'll explain why I couldn't put it on my list but everybody that listens to my show knows that I love the lighthouse it was in my top five of the year that year so great pick that's your number four my number four you know I should preface by saying I you know, we know each other, Matt, but I don't know if you know, but horror is my favorite genre. I'm a big horror movie fan. And you can probably tell by some of my backdrop here when you tuned in <laughs> on the call. But this might be the horror movie on my list, which is funny, but it's Bo Burnham's Eighth Grade from 2018. Oh, man. Oh, man. There are yeah. some scenes in that movie that made me more uncomfortable than yeah. anything I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. You know, you have this guy that was a YouTube star, the stand-up comedian. And he's making this movie that's such an intimate portrait of life at that age. And he's also doing it. It's a girl. It's a, the lead character is a female, too. So to me, it's just amazing that he was able to accomplish that. And, and such a real-world feel was able to be, you know, established there. And we were able to buy it so much, or at least I did. And I know a lot of other people did as well. But Elsie Fisher, you know, just an amazing job in that in that movie as this young girl Mm -hmm. Josh Hamilton the scene that they have together around the fire pit one of the best scenes I mean I tear up every time I see it and the movie you know I jokingly said it was one of the the better horror movies on my list but it really did capture memories of you know I should say you know harmful memories of a childhood you know things Mm -hmm. that things that made you feel uncomfortable whether you were in your bathing suit at the pool with your friends around or you know the different things that play out in this movie it really like jarred those memories in me where I'm like yeah I remember that really sucked, you know, the bullying or whatever. And I just think that's a testament to Bo Burnham's direction. You know, again, we were talking earlier at the top about A24 not getting a lot of love in award season. I feel like this was a win that was criminally under the radar um, that year. That 2018 year was brutal for A24. That was, that was, uh, God, I think about it often. And yeah. it hurts. It, it, really it still hurts to this day. But you're obviously a fan of this one, right? You like the pick? Uh, huge fan in my top 10 that year. I was a huge fan of Bo Burnham. Uh, still am. Uh, been a fan of his since he was 16 years old. Uh, his first songs, I found him on YouTube as a young kid myself and uh, just kind of fell in love with his style of comedy and how he blended like show tunes uh, along with uh, his humor and created like these just very catchy, memorable songs. Eighth grade, I think the reason why it works so well, much like Barry Jenkins, is that you could tell Bo Burnham just has such a deep empathy for not just this lead character, but also to what that generation is going through in terms of social media and getting lost in uh, technology and also how it is hurting the way that they socially uh, not just interact with others, but how they socially position themselves in the world to actually become their future selves. Right. It's a really, really psychological film in that regard. And it's something that I uh, like, not only did it take me by surprise, but it's a film that I (laughs) have found myself returning to actually a couple of times since then. And Mm -hmm. that's surprising considering, like I said, 
there are some scenes in this that even still, even though I know it's going to happen, Bo Burnham just does such a good job of making me go, oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. No. I'm right. just like cringing at me watching it right right well that's my number four eighth grade lining up at least I, at least i know you i didn't know how you felt about saint maude i was pretty sure you were a fan of eighth grade though all right man so you had moonlight and the lighthouse what is your number three okay so for number three i wanted to find a pick uh that was going to be one of their uh wholesome uh films that really wasn't so much a genre movie but was more of like a slice of life kind of a film uh that had characters that you really uh could relate to um even if they were different from you in some ways and the movie i ultimately settled on for this actually surprised me when i started comparing it to other films in a24's catalog i was surprised at where this ended up for me but Mm -hmm. um i just have deep love and affinity for Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird. That's a good one. It, it was so close to cracking my top five, and Saint Maud sn- snuck in there as kind of you know recency bias, perhaps. But I love Lady Bird. Absolutely love this movie. Love so many different things about it. Talk a little bit about it before I jump in, though. Yeah. So I mean, with this film in particular, I think for me the thing that I uh, come back to time and time again is the relationship with Laurie Metcalf's character and how she resembles my own mother in a lot of ways. Mm. And for me, I, that's a that's a personal. Connection. Action. But outside of that, um, in terms of, you know, things that everybody can appreciate with it, I think Saoirse Ronan's performance in it is one of one of her best. Um, I think that the screenplay is incredibly smart and really, really well written, not just in terms of its humor, but also in how it captures um, what can seemingly on the surface be very mundane, uh, you know, real world problems, but yet somehow still make them not, I don't want to say like deeply cinematic, but mm-hmm. in some way transfer those emotions over cinematically in a very very subliminal way where the film almost works it's like magic over you and you Mm -hmm. don't even realize that it's actually happening you know movies like lighthouse uh moonlight a couple other a24 titles and just movies in general they deploy a lot of tricks you know to get you to go oh man like i was so captivated by this and that because of its editing it's also it's music it's cinematography etc lady bird is not a movie that i reference when it comes to cinematography editing techniques things of that nature it is just solid writing very 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 strong direction Mm -hmm. and direction doesn't always have to be so much a unique vision as much as it is taking every single element that sometimes we take for granted in terms of things like pacing Mm -hmm. uh, actors performances sure and putting all this together to make the film just flow so effortlessly with such entertainment, heightened emotion, and honestly, a raw feeling of sincerity right. behind it. That, to me, it's a movie that is not overstated, and that's the best compliment I could possibly uh, pay it. Yeah, I agree 100%, and that's a good way to put it. It's it's kind of simple, but kind of deep at the same time. <laughs> and I think that's yeah, kind of what how you're I, saying. And, and that, that's how I found um, uh, the movie I was talking about earlier. Uh, Minari. That's how I found that movie also to be uh, last year. And that movie was duking it out with this one fitted slot here. But okay. I, I ultimately settled on Lady Bird in the end. Now, at the top of the show, you were talking about compiling your list and you were saying you kind of had almost had a panic attack coming up with your list. Well, I had a panic attack watching this movie. My number three is Uncut Gems from 2019. Safety Brothers 
starring Mr. Adam Sandler in the lead role, a newcomer, Julia Fox, Lakeith Stanfield. A lot of great actors and actresses in this movie, but the Safdie brothers, like, really manic style of filmmaking really speaks to me. Um, mm-hmm. It's almost like they, like, misedited it on purpose or something to, like, fuck with us. I don't know. It's really <laughs> weird, but, you know, a lot of quick jump cuts and quick shots and, like, obviously the subject matter lends to what you're watching as well. I mean, I think back to a movie there is a good time that's very similar in that way where it's just very, like, you're just so, like, worried about, you know, the characters in the movie and what's playing out on screen. And, you you know, you watch this character in the movie that Sandler's playing and you're like, you know, please don't do that. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. And then he does that. And then you have mm-hmm. to kind of, like, go through the journey with him. But, of course, you know, the, where would the, what would the movie be without those moments? So I understand that. But, yeah, Uncut Gems was, I saw this in the theater and I just remember thinking, I mean, everything from that opening credit sequence to just these different, you know, because it was such a realistically shot movie, too, you know, on the mm-hmm. street, on the streets of New York. And it just it had that very it had a very, you know, not a lot of the movies. Lady Bird, I would say, would fit in this category, too. But it had that little like fly on the wall kind of perspective where you kind of feel like you're watching something real play out in front of you. Um, and that's why, you know, that's another reason why I love Uncut Gems. I love the Safties. So, uh, you know, they really speak to me in terms of their style of filmmaking. So this is my number three, man. What do you think about this one? I think you, you've you been a fan of this one since the beginning. Remind me. Or you kind of came back no. to it, right? Yeah. 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 This was this was one of the most fascinating uh, journeys I'd ever had with a movie. I saw it at the world premiere at the Telluride Film Festival. And when I was there, I, I'm pretty positive. There were two things that happened. One was, I think, the sound in the oh, auditorium. Yeah. I heard you tell this story. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. the sound in the auditorium, uh, I maintain to this day, was too loud. And so all of that overlapping dialogue, how prevalent the score was, it made for such a grating experience for me that, and I felt bad because I had to review it. And the review that's up on the website to this day is like my initial walking out of the theater like reaction to the movie. And um, I, I feel very, um, I, I feel bad about that because I saw the movie again a few months later. I think I saw it again. Uh, maybe it wasn't a few months later. It might've been just a month later, mm-hmm. but I saw it like in October or some of some time in early October. Safties were there. Uh, Eric Borgstein was there. A couple other people were there. Got to talk to the Safties. They asked me, you know, and I actually like got, friendly with them that year, which was pretty cool because I've, I've actually been a big fan of theirs for a while coming from New York and being these independent filmmakers. Yeah. Um, they, they didn't know that I actually used to sell them equipment at an old job that oh, I used wow. to work. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. So I, I told, I, that was like my in and how I started sure, a conversation yeah. with them. Yeah. But um, needless to say, I asked them, yo, did you tinker around with the sound a little bit? Because it was a lot better this time around when I saw it the second time. And they they like told me that I tell you right, it wasn't like 100% done and they mm. had reworked ever so slightly um in like i think like with the mixing or something but needless to say it was totally different i remember i reviewed it on the podcast uh after that viewing and then i saw it a third time after that and by that point it had skyrocketed to landing in my top 10 of the year because i found myself like i said just continuously wanting to go back to it right wanting to go back to that manic energy, wanting to go back to that stress, but also to to appreciate what Adam Sandler was doing in that movie with that role, because that was something that we've seen Sandler, you know, play dramatic before. Mm-hmm. But this is like his best work that he's ever done. Oh, yeah, it's such a sure. perfect utilization of who he is as a actor. And, you know, let's call it like it is. He's a little 
limited in my opinion in terms of what he could do as an actor Mm -hmm. but just in terms of how they intended to use him and his fit with this character on the page it just worked yeah um i i i i'm very very viciously entertained by this movie every single time now that i watch it which is such a far cry from the first time that i saw it and i was annoyed i had a headache i was just it was probably like it was probably like me with it was probably like me with tenant last year (laughs) It also didn't help, too, that when I saw it, all these people were walking out of the screening. Uh-huh. And so in a way, it's like I almost felt like justified, you know, um, yeah, so I kind of yeah. I thought to myself, man, if I didn't like it as much as I did and I saw people walking out, I guess they didn't like it, too. So when I saw it got these amazing reviews, I was like, all right. It's just initial reactions. We'll see what happens, you know, and then it continued to do well. And that's what made me want to go back and check it out, because I was like, you know what? Whenever that does happen, sometimes I do question what frame of mind was I in? Mm -hmm. What circumstances was I watching it in within the theater? Was there somebody in the theater that was making my experience bad, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll and I'll and I will revisit films when I'm noticing that it's potentially possible that something like that was impacting like my viewing experience. Yeah, the surroundings completely. like I saw, um, like I like just really quick. I saw the front runner, the Jason Reitman film with Hugh Jackman, went um, the same day as um, that. Uh, the CNN buildings and the Clintons and the Obamas were all being like threatened on the news. Mm-hmm. So this movie that like came out with its themes and such just weren't sitting well with me that day. Right. Um, and I saw it. I saw it a little bit later on, and I was like, okay, it's still not great, but I liked it a little bit more at least. You know, and there have been a couple of instances where that's happened before. Sure. So. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I could understand. That. You know, one one cool story about Uncut Gems, you probably know this already. I don't know how many of the mm-hmm. listeners might not know it, though. But Adam Sandler went on the Dan Patrick show. It's a buddy of his that does like the sports talk show. And he went on there and he was telling the story about Uncut Gems and getting cast for that. And I guess the Safties waited like seven or eight years to just to get Sandler. And they kept going to play basketball with him and like uh, street ball with him in New York and stuff. And they, <laughs> they played basketball with him for like eight years trying to talk him into doing this movie. And he finally came around to doing it. And I'm so glad he did. I mean, I'm, I agree with you. I think this is his best work by a million miles. I mean, I love Loved him in Punch Struck Love and a couple other things too. And then if you look at the slapstick comedy in his SNL days, I mean that's a different you know bucket. But he does really well in that in that genre of stuff too. So I, I find it really funny that like however many years ago it was that they would be asking him to do this, and he's probably thinking, "All right, you kids, I'm gonna go enjoy my millions. You guys go back to doing whatever it is you're doing." Because he's right. he probably like literally was like. Here, who are these two independent like filmmaker schmucks who want me, Adam Sandler, like in their movie right. with all right. my millions of dollars? And you guys aren't even going to pay me. Well, you're not <laughs> taking my friends to to the beaches. What what is right. this? Yeah, we're not going. On and a then cruise he ship, probably he probably saw a Good Time or yes, it was Heaven Knows What. He heaven probably saw what. Heaven Knows What, and that's probably when he was like, "All right, all right, all right, I'll I'll all do right. it already. Yeah. I'll I'll do this. I'll do this. exactly." So Uncut Gems, man, stressed me out, but I love that movie, and I've revisited it a couple of times, and I still dig it. So that's my number three. We're up to our runner-ups, Matt. What do you got at number two, man? All right. Number two is a movie that uh, anyone that's a longtime listener to the show has heard me talk about uh, a million times. It's um, my second favorite horror movie ever made, and it is a movie that I went out of my way to champion rigorously uh, the year that it came out in hopes that I could get its lead actress, a Best Actress nomination, and I think 
failed. It is Ari Aster's feature debut film, Hereditary. Well, we can talk about it and have a love fest because that's my number two as well. So what? Look at that. Yeah. So that's also my number two. So yeah, you go first. I was fir- wondering you go when first, we were going to have uh, some a overlap crossover, here. right? Yeah. A twenty four is so much good stuff. But yeah, my top two were quote unquote horror. So this is my number two as well. What do you want to say about Hereditary before I jump in? I just want to say that I'm not a big fan of the horror genre like you are. But what this movie did for me and what this movie was able to communicate within the horror genre, I think is more terrifying than any standard horror 101 trick in terms of a jump scare or whatever tool a filmmaker can use in his arsenal to convey aspects of what we typically associate with the horror genre because the pain and grief and trauma that Tony Collette's character endures in this movie is something that we can all hopefully not on a firsthand level, but hopefully we can all identify and empathize with mm-hmm. and something that uh, it, it, it scares the living hell out of me. Like I don't have kids. Um, I've got two younger sisters, but even friends, um, extended family, anything like that. Sure. The very idea of having to imagine uh, some, like, something like that happening to them that happens to like her daughter in this film mm-hmm. or even what happens with her mom and this fear, mm-hmm. this fear that something has been passed down from her mom to her family, whether it be uh, mental illness, a disease, that's that kind of real world terror. Right. You know, that's that. That's that real shit right there. <laughs> right. And you're, and you're right, man. I mean, you know, I'm sure I'm sure you were going to touch on it, too. And it kind of goes along with what you're saying. But the reason why that affects you and I and other people that rank this movie so high is Tony Collette's portrayal of that damaged mother and that tortured mom going through these different tragedies in her life. I mean, I do have kids. I have three children and they're all different ages. I'm a, I'm a psychomaniac, but I have a two-year-old, a seven-year-old and almost a 20-year-old. So I'm all over the place. Jesus. Uh, so I'm dealing with my own range of emotions. Uh, I'm sure I'll be the Man's topic of a movie busy. today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but right. I mean, Tony Collette really just, and that's not to take away any of the other performances in the film because they're all great too, but she just really sells that grief, you know, because this is mm-hmm. really, and he did it with Midsummer too, but it's it's a story about dealing with grief. You know, yep. the, the opening to, and I'm assuming you're not going to have two Astro films back to back, but the opening to Midsummer, for example, that first, you know, 15 minutes or whatever, that's like, that's fucking, that's hard to watch. I mean, that is a very oh, totally. like torturous familial tragedy that you're literally witnessing like in real time. And he like puts you there and forces you into that uneasiness and that awkwardness of the situation. And he does that mm-hmm. in Hereditary to tremendous effect too. Namely, in the scene you're talking about with with the daughter on the ride home. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you're in that car in silence with the brother. With I mean, just- that's the thing. I, I I've been I've been in car accidents before, and when you're in shock, you are in shock. And right. the way that he reacts, uh, Alex Wolf, to uh, that moment is so incredibly realistic that that once again that's what horrifies me is that Ari Aster mm-hmm. didn't go for conventional movie cheap tricks. Yep. to elicit horror from the audience. He decided to show real world reactions by people who if they act, if this actually happened, this is how they would behave. And it it just 
really not only cut deep into my bones, but it probably penetrated my bones and into my soul and sucked everything out of me simultaneously. I remember stumbling yep. out of the theater at Sundance when I saw this. I I was clutching, clutching my notebook mm. to my chest because I was just so struck by this film. I, I was shooketh. <laughs> it was a really affecting film, absolutely. How'd you yeah. feel how'd you feel about the last act? You know, it falls it fell apart for a lot of people. A lot of the criticism yeah. I've seen is that all that stuff that kind of comes flying at you at the last act. What did you did that work for you? I, I, I thought like, okay, this is what like actual horror fans are, you know, here for. I liked it. Yeah. I was there for it. I still thought that there were some very creative things being done mm-hmm. in that final sequence. Um, mainly the famous shot of her on the ceiling, oh, which yeah. is one of the most terrifying Haunting, shots in any bro. horror film ever. Haunting. Absolutely. And then even to the last couple of seconds of the film, when he goes up into the uh, clubhouse, mm-hmm. um, there is an extra added layer of WTFness to that moment that makes you want to go back and rewatch the movie then. Right. To kind of maybe understand a little bit better. What does it all mean? What is going on? I mean, sure, you could probably maybe get it all from a first viewing, but I did think that it added an extra layer to what the movie was ultimately uh, putting forth mm-hmm. in terms of um, the, the, the pagan uh, aspects and yeah. uh, you know, the, uh, I don't, I don't want to call it witchcraft, but yeah, like what, whatever it was that was going on there, the ritual as- ritualistic a- aspects of it all. Sure. So th- there was a lot to unpack there. And I was very, very fortunate enough in my praise for this film to get to meet Ari Aster, talk awesome. with Ari Aster. Awesome. I've seen him at a couple of events in here in New York uh, since then. And he, I, I always think, oh, he's not going to recognize me. He's not going to remember. He always remembers me. And I'm just oh, like, great. all right, that's really cool, man. That's he's great. a filmmaker that I um, am very invested in, in terms of what he's going to do moving forward. And he has indicated before that he is done with in the horror uh, genre. exploring yeah, gr- grief within the horror genre. And he's moving yeah. on to other things. And I can't wait to see what he does. Yeah, I'd heard musicals, right? A, a musical. He really wants to do one. Yeah, yep. yeah. He's one of uh, my favorite young filmmakers easily. I mean, he's, he's easily in my top top five like current that are currently like actively making new movies right now um mm-hmm. i love him and i'm going to talk about the other one in my number one here in a minute but that was also my number two hereditary and just <laughs> to give a quick shout out i also love midsummer i think that is a also a very beautiful tale of grief and you know, you don't get a horror movie shot in broad daylight 90% of the movie uh, very no. often. So the colors in that movie, Florence Pugh's performance. Um, yeah, I just wanted to kind of give a quick shout out to that because I kind of like them both equally. But Hereditary really affected me a lot more than, than Midsummer did. So totally. that's, all, that's also my runner up. What's your number one, man? I'm, I'm excited. Let's see what your number one A24 film is, man. And number one uh, for me is a movie that... I knew when I saw it, I was watching something special. Um, I don't think I fully appreciated it the first time I saw it. Subsequent viewing since then has led me to realize that this is a flat out 10 out of 10 masterpiece. Um, maybe one of the greatest films of all time. A movie that had a very, very deep impact on my life early on. And just in regards to my cinematic journey was 2001 A Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick. Mm. And a lot of that had to do with the existentialism of it all and getting me to ask questions, questions about the universe, questions about myself, questions about humanity. This movie just inspired me to look both inward and outward so much. And a mo- and I've had movies that have done that since then, but I think the movie that has come closest since is David Lowry's A Ghost Story. Oh, okay. Interesting pick. I didn't see this coming. I didn't know this. Oh my God, I feel like I should have known this. I, I, do, li- I do like this movie a lot too. Yeah, because 
like I said, when I saw it the first time, I I think that that is I think that that is the kind of film that you cannot peg it down after just one viewing. You got to let give it oh, some yeah, time to sure. sit with you. And I'm glad that I did. And I'm glad that I also uh, had a chance to review it finally on our podcast uh, sometime later as well. And even since then, I've watched it again since. And it just continues to climb up in esteem for me, uh, where it's one of my top favorite films of the decade. And as years go on, as I get older, as I start questioning the meaning of life, what lies beyond uh, mm-hmm. life for me? Was my life meaningful? Was it worthless? Did I have any kind of an impact? These are all things that uh, continue to drive me uh, forward in terms of just kind of doing what I do on a daily basis by talking about this art firm to, to get people to also ask similar questions as I ask as well. And a ghost story, I think, is a tremendous fuel for such incredible discussion. So that is why it is number one on that list, because when it just comes to a pure conversational starter that can literally drift off into so many different topics and can also get really, really deeply personal and psychological then with you as an individual conveying something very deep and true about yourself. Mm -hmm. This movie has the ability, I think, to bring that out of you. Sure. Yeah, I agree, man. This is a pick that I didn't see coming, but I love this movie, so I'm glad I got a shout out. What remind me, I only saw it the one time, remind me what the the divisive scene was with her on the kitchen floor, right? It plays out for like... She's eating a pie for six minutes. Eating a pie for like six minutes, so you were... And the camera just holds on her for that time. So that's a choice by Lowry, obviously, so... You you dug that, or did you have to kind of think about it later? Because I know oh, a lot yeah, of people no. talked about that. Come on, there's uh, you know, there's movies of uh, you know, French women cleaning their apartments for four hours long, and it's amazing <laughs> right, cinema. Right. Uh, no, uh, no, sure. no, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm being funny, but realistically, um, the reality of like that kind of a scene for me is uh, one, it's relatable. That's number one. Yeah. Uh, number two is that it shows that in such detail, not in terms of it being shot in like close ups or anything. It is a wide shot, fully unbroken, mm-hmm. and it just lets it play out the way that life plays out. True. You know, it's like, what does Alfred Hitchcock say? Film is life with the boring bits cut out. Well, mm-hmm. well, a ghost story has a quote unquote boring bit like that left in there. But in a lot of ways, that is life. And I think that the film uh, expertly blends elements of the cinema with the real world to create something, like I said, that's very transcendent. Yeah. yeah, the more like the more and more I think about it, the more I revisit it, the more I'm just continuously impressed by it. And I, I think it's like I really do think it's one of those game changer films that comes along like once in a generation. Right, right. I feel like it's it's fair to say it's probably underseen though, right? But very. Yeah, unfortunately. Very much so. Unfortunately, but yeah, I agree with you. All right, man, great pick. A ghost story. I didn't see it coming, but it's a great pick. That's your number one. I'm going to have you wrap up your list in a minute, but before we do that, I'll talk about my number one. So my number one is a horror movie, not to shock anyone, and it is from 2015. It's The Witch. Nice. By, by uh, Robert Eggers. I didn't want to, I was chomping at the bit earlier when you mentioned him for The Lighthouse, but there's so many different reasons why this is my favorite A24 movie. And actually, this is the only movie that would have even been considered for this list that would fall in my like top 20 or 25 of all time. Uh, this movie just really captured the horror genre. So it captured, mm-hmm. kind of let, let us salivate a little bit with some of that stuff, some of the supernatural stuff that plays out in the movie. Black Phillip, fucking haunt your dreams uh, in this movie. Anya Taylor-Joy, who I almost lost, I fucking almost fainted today when I saw her in Last Night in Soho trailer. I can't wait to see that. But she's was great in The Queen's Gambit and really everything she's done, she's great in. And mm-hmm. this, is, this is kind of her semi-introduction, at least somatically, to the world, cinematically. And what I've always said about this movie or what I thought of is it's kind of 
like the shining and colonial New England. So we get to witness this family dealing with the tragedy again. So we have an element of grief built in here. And we get to kind of just witness the descent into what we ultimately see in the last act of the movie with, you know, like I said, Black Phillip and a lot of other things that befall this family as it plays out. And the aura of madness and the environment of insanity that Eggers creates in this film and just like his dedication to to that. I mean, the same thing can be said for The Lighthouse. You know, we didn't mention it, but like when the foghorn's going off every like five minutes and it just keeps mm-hmm. going off the whole movie, it's like it gets to a point two thirds of the way through and you're like, is that going off or do I just fucking hear it in my head? You know, like <laughs> so The Witch does it too, where you kind of feel like you're losing grip with reality with the characters in the movie and Eggers in both of his features, has really made me feel that way as a viewer. This one also really sticks with me, Matt, as an anecdotal story, but I saw this on a business trip on my iPad in a dark hotel room, and it was a hotel room in Salem, Massachusetts. We were there for October, and my boss took us there for like this conference or whatever over the Halloween season, and that was when I saw it for the first time in a dark hotel room in Salem. So that kind of fucked with me a little bit too, I think. Oh boy. Uh, kind of spoke to me in a meta way, but I love this movie. One of my patrons actually just anonymously sent me a poster for this movie, I mean, I haven't had a chance to put it on the wall behind me yet, but they know I love it. But yeah, I would just, I just describe this as the shining in colonial New England. It's a really kind of fucked up, intimate family story that has all these kind of like horrific supernatural elements floating around in the backdrop. It's beautifully shot. Uh, yeah. you, you know, we mentioned Ari Aster, but Robert Eggers is also easily one of my top five filmmakers right now. Is it the Northman that's come out uh, this year, right? The Northman? No, it's coming out uh, April of 2022 now. Oh, okay, they pushed it back. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm very, speaking of Anya Taylor-Joy again, I'm very excited for that movie as well. So anything he does, I'm there. I think he has Bjork playing a witch in that movie, from what I hear. <laughs> That is true. So I can't wait for that. But yeah, I love him. I love this movie. It's my number one. Are you surprised? How do you feel about it? You said you're not a huge horror fan. So what do you think of The Witch? Oh, no. The Witch is an exception. Uh, that also made it into my top 10 that year as well. Um, I, I I have a thing. I'm and I, and I like I'm not a true horror fan, like as I mentioned before. But I do have a thing for the way that A24 does their horror films. I'm also a fan of uh, It Comes at Night. Mm-hmm. is another A24 horror film that yep. I was also a fan of. Mm-hmm. The Witch was uh, a movie that was close to making this list for me. I ultimately went with The Lighthouse above it because when I looked at my top tens for uh, the respective years that those two uh, came out, I had The Lighthouse ranked a bit higher than the, than I did with The Witch. And so I, 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 but I still do love The Witch. It introduced us to Anya Taylor-Joy, as you mentioned before. Yep. Um, I think that some of the imagery in that film and some of the scenes are truly breathtaking and the way that it depicts um, horror uh, in, in in a period setting, not mm-hmm. horror in a modern setting, but for period. Right. Um, and once again, realistically, I mean, the research that he did for this movie is unparalleled. For, and it's such a small film, too. Uh, small cast, very, very limited in its locations. Mm-hmm. It's a true independent film and one of the best that I have seen to come out of uh, Sundance and also, too, from a feature uh, filmmaking debut as well. I was so super excited when I initially saw it and I could not wait to see what he would do next. And after The Lighthouse and obviously what we've seen on paper, on paper uh, with the Northmen uh, sight unseen in terms yeah. of a trailer or anything like that, but just... <laughs> He's going to be tackling Vikings next. Are you right. kidding me? <laughs> right. That's what I mean. He just really is just committed to the craft, man. He just really impresses mm-hmm. me what he's been doing in movie making because and, and to be so new at it. I mean, he, he just started. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's only had two features and both yep. of both of them have blown me away. So The Witch is easily one of my favorite movies of all time. So I knew as soon as we were doing this list that it was going to be most likely number one. And here we are. So as my number one. All right, Matt. I tell you what we're gonna do, man. We're gonna take a quick promo break, all right? And then when we come back, we're gonna wrap 
wrap up our top fives, just remind everybody what we had, and then we'll see what honorable mentions that we want to shout out that didn't make our list. Okay. So we'll be, good. we'll be back in just a minute. Hello, listeners. Did you know that there is a lot more content where this episode came from? As you may know, we are an independent podcast and we rely on donations in order to keep going. Over on our Patreon site, you will find several ways to stretch your dollar. I am currently producing six exclusive series that you can only get there. They include popular ones such as My First Time and 100 G-Tunes. You'll also get regular main top five episodes, just like this one, super early, often weeks in advance. For as little as $1, you can help the show continue. Just visit us over at patreon.com slash two peas on a pod, or you can check the show notes for this very episode. Now let's get back to the countdown. All right, guys, welcome back. As I said, pre-break, we are going to go through some honorable mentions here for our favorite from the A24 catalog. Matt Negley is here from Next Best Picture. It's a little bit of a tongue twister for me, Matt, every time. <laughs> just say MVP, I guess. Well, he's here, man. It's, it was a great conversation. Real quick, man, why don't you just remind everybody what your top five was? Okay, so at number five, I had Moonlight. Number four was The Lighthouse. Number three, Lady Bird. Two, Hereditary. And one, A Ghost Story. I love it, man. Great, great list. My number five was St. Maud. My number four was Eighth Grade. Number three was Uncut Gems. My number two was Hereditary. And my number one was The Witch from 2015. Now, before we go on and wrap up the episode, Matt, I wanted to see what honorable mentions you had. I like to limit myself to five, so I have five more movies here. What about you, man? What did you want to shout out to round out your top ten? Jesus Christ. Okay. Uh, Top five honorable mentions. Uh... Wow. Okay. Um, oh, did it have to be like an order or? No, nah, I mean, I do mine in order, but absolutely not. Just whatever, whatever you're comfortable with, man. Okay, fine. Uh, number five, I will go with. <laughs> All right. Number five, I'll say is the witch. You mean as in 10. So you're going back. Cor- okay. Correct. All right. All right. Yeah. Okay. All right. The witch. Number 10 is the witch. All right. Number nine is, uh, and, and here's the problem is that I probably should have had five sitting here, but instead I have like 10. So I'm just like, oh, you're okay, trying to this pick one, this out. one, that one, and I'm knocking them out. Yeah, yeah. So number, all right. So number five is the witch. Number four, I will say is room. All right. Good one. Number three is the lobster. Oh, okay. Number two is yeah. You don't want to leave any out, right? No, but I am going to leave one out. Torture. I'm going to leave one out just because it came out last year. I am going to leave off Minari for now, just to see how it does on rewatches uh, over the next year or so. And I'll say number two, Uncut Gems. Number one, Eighth Grade. All right. So I'll go backwards too. So my ten would have been First Reformed. Uh, mm. with Ethan Hawke. Not the best time to be a Paul Schrader fan right now. <laughs> I know, I know, and I consider hey, that. Hey, hey, I, I get it, I get it. That yeah, movie is pretty phenomenal. Yeah, the last scene alone is uh, just sticks. We were talking about sticking with you. It just it stuck mm-hmm. with me ever since I saw it. So, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> my my number nine would have been Lady Bird, which you mentioned. My number eight would have been mm-hmm. Ex Machina. Oh, good choice. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and then seven would have been Minari for me. So mm-hmm. um, it was one of my favorite films of the year last year probably would have been like my two or three last year i'm like you by the way the two biggest promising young woman fans in the world are sitting here together on this call but like <laughs> like you i championed a champion no movie more than promising a woman last year but minari uh was probably a close second for me in terms of the oscar nominated films at least and then my number six or what would have been my number six you already mentioned as well which was moonlight 
So I think we already mentioned that's a Barry Jenkins masterpiece. So that would have been the 10 films that I would have mentioned this evening for A24. All right, Matt Negley, I'm a big fan of yours, man. I'm a patron of your show. And uh, it's a thrill for me to finally get you on the 2P show, man, to, to do a top five with me. And hopefully you'll... I had to grab you after award season because I know once the award season kicks up, forget it. So I'm like, let me see what he's doing in you know June or whatever. So here we are. I joke around with my family all the time. Do not bother me from September until February. That's, I am unavailable. That's right. That's right, man. But it means a lot to me for you coming on for this co-hosting gig. And I love A24. So it was cool to get your perspective on some of these movies, too. Uh, I know probably the whole world knows. But why don't you just tell them about Next Best Picture and where they can find you, man? Yeah. So Next Best Picture really is an awards website that not only tracks film awards, but we're a bunch of film lovers in general. So we're, in theory, looking for a Next Best Picture Oscar winner. But really what we're looking for is the Next Best Picture, a.k.a. what's going to be the next best movie that's going to be right around the corner for us. So that could be from any genre. We do not discriminate. We will cover the large blockbusters as well as the award season contenders all year long. So uh, that's what we do over at Next Best Picture. We do this through uh, written reviews, blog posts, articles, interviews with cast and crew. um, And of course, our podcast where we do movie reviews, interviews with cast and crew. And uh, we have a weekly talk show as well every Sunday where we just discuss the latest of what's going on uh, in the industry. We gauge the community. We talk about uh, polls that they've been voting on and just serves as great discussion for all of us on a weekly basis where we never have uh, we're never wanting uh, for content to which is very, very nice. Right. So it's uh, listed everywhere at nextbestpicture.com. All the social media is under Next Best Picture. Absolutely. Drop man. in. <laughs> Look, guys, I mean, you know, any regular listeners of my show, they know I'm obsessed with the Oscars and with award season in general and really just with movies, period. But I really get into it, and that's the first place I go is Next Best Picture. So I'll put all the information in the show notes for Matt, but I hope you guys look them up and check them out, especially if you're a film lover, if you're into award season, and even if not, because they're going to cover everything. So uh, go check them out. Green Knight's coming up uh, shortly after this. I'm sure there'll be something out there for the Green Knight and all the other movies that you'll be hearing about in the future. So Matt, it means a lot that you came on, man. I really appreciate it. Hopefully I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Absolutely. You as well. Thank you so much for having me here. All right, guys, we will be back next week and we will have another top five and another P on the pod. Everybody take care. 